Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a podcast of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Carrie Baldwin, to talk about Chapter 3 of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Norman. It's good to be here. Always a pleasure to have you on in particular. So first off, I want to give you a chance to let everybody know who you are real quick, just in case you you haven't been around long enough to hear about Carrie Baldwin. <laughs> Carrie, give us like the 60-second the intro on yourself and where we can find you online real quick. Yeah, so I'm one of the contributors with LCI, but I also have my own website called mereliberty.com. I think I'm probably becoming best known for my debate with Walter Block on the issue of abortion, but I've you know, I've I've written and spoken about a number of things. So Yeah. And we're certainly supportive of, of your efforts there at Mere Liberty. And we're very grateful for all of your work on behalf of Liberty and on, on behalf of Christ as well. We're so happy that you joined us for this project on faith seeking freedom. And you and I spent a lot of time working on this chapter three together, which is uh is subtitled What is Government? And so what mm-hmm. we want to do today is kind of at a high level go over what's in this chapter and talk about some of the issues involved so that if you're interested in getting this book, taking a look at it, reading it, giving it to your friends that you have kind of the heads up on what's been happening. And as well, let me, let me also remind you that if you are interested in any of the topics here and you want to engage with us more on it, you are more than welcome to contact us at libertarianchristians.com contact. You can send us emails there securely and we will get them. We are pretty diligent to answer any questions that come our way via that. And if they're particularly interesting, maybe they'll make it into a future version of the book or a blog post. <laughs> so with that being said, let's jump right into it. Carrie, what is government at all? Why do we, why do we care about this thing called government? And, uh, and why are we so much against it? What's the deal? <laughs> well, you know, that's the first question in the book is is addressing where we get the institution of government from, right? Which is it's created yep. by God, and so this is this is a really important topic to Christians because Scripture specifically addresses it. But it doesn't. What Scripture doesn't really do is it doesn't expound upon you know how we actually go about conducting civil government. We've got some principles, some guidelines, some some moral law that applies. But what we really want to talk about in this chapter is the purpose of civil government. And, you know, what is its jurisdiction? How far do we go with that? Is is anything they declare a crime a crime, right? And we also want to talk about the difference between government as, you know, the the entity, or we like to refer to it as the state, so that's the entity with the power. And we want to distinguish between that and civil governance. And so this chapter talks about that as well. Yeah, and, and I think it, you know, you bring up that it is talked about in the Bible. So to us Christians, it's important for us to understand, like, okay, well, what does what not only what does the Bible have to say about it, but how do we interpret what is happening in the Bible regarding government in our current modern era? Yeah. There's something to be said for, 
you know, well, the kings of the ancient Near East are not exactly the same as, say, the Roman Empire in the New Testament in the, and in the first few centuries versus what we now know as the modern nation state, mm-hmm. as we see in, you know, various nations across the world, including, you know, these United States mm-hmm. as well. So fundamentally, what we try to do is not just label them on the aspect of, well, what type of government is it in the sense of, well, is it a monarchy or a democracy or something to that effect, but on what are its aspects? Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is, is perhaps much more apropos in, in many respects than people want to give it credit for. Right. Because on the one hand, you know, people want to try and say, well, things are just different now. We live in a representative democracy, a, a republic, a, you know, a democratic republic now. That's not a, the kind of tyrannical uh, type of beast that we saw in you know, the Roman Empire or, mm-hmm. uh, or in the ancient Near East or something to that effect. But I don't think that's really the best way to think about it. I think it's more important to recognize the aspects of power. Right. And so, in a sense, even if they did not have the nation state, as we would call it in, say, the ancient Near East, what we did see is the birth of statism or the idea that uh, the concentration of power into a more singularized entity is certainly present and accounted for, even in Genesis. And we talk about that earlier in the book as well, in particular in chapter one. But, you know, even if we are to say that these are things that are, were created by God, that they were, it's not something that was outside of the plan of God. It's, they're not aberrations where God looked upon it and went, oh, whoops, I, I didn't intend for that to happen <laughs> in a sense of, you know, not in the, the sense of, you know, like a predestination sense per se, but just in a like he, it was, it was just by accident or something to that effect. Like that's, it's not some random occurrence. Mm-hmm. It's something that God accounted for, no matter where you come from, you know, from your interpretation or hermeneutic of Scripture. Like these were not aberrations in the sense of outside of God's plan, like that. Right. So the Bible is not trying to tell us that this is some aberration, but neither is it trying to give us a justification theory of the state either. Right. And that's, I, I think, the, the kind of the crucial disconnects that people often have about the nature of, of government itself is, number one, that it is uh, not something, there's a justification for it in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Bible, but neither is it something that, ju- that God looked upon and just went like, oops, yeah. <laughs> either. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, lots of people will say, well, we have the government you know, the reason why God established government is to keep sinful people in check. And, you know, that's true, but there's, there's lots of sin out there. And we've had to talk about what specifically are we going to address with that? Or what specifically does government address with that? Because if it's all sin that government is supposed to address, then we, we have a dilemma because it's just like what you said, we're, we're concentrating that power in a single entity. And if we're all sinners and we all need, you know, to, to have checks on us, on our, on our sinful behavior, then what makes the government so special that it doesn't need a check on, on it? And so, you know, we, we talk about how do we square the fact that sinful people are going to be in charge of civil governance? That's, that's uh, question number two. And part of our point yeah. that, we're, that we're trying to draw out is that obviously we, we can't escape the fact that sinful people will be in charge of civil government. And so if that's the case, then we have to assume that they too are under 
the same you know moral restrictions that the rest of us are under they don't they don't have any special privileges as the state and or they shouldn't as the state right because that would create an inherent contradiction in scripture and that can't be so you know it's very easy to say well government is supposed to be there to keep sinful people in check okay, but who's going to keep the government in check? How do we do that? And I think that's where we get into the conversation of, you know, different sorts of political philosophies. You have, like you mentioned, monarchies and democracies and republics and all these different forms of government, which are inventions of man, right? Those aren't inventions of God. Those are inventions of man trying to sort through how we're supposed to administer civil justice in a sinful, fallen world. So that raises the question, though, is there really any form of government that is legitimate? Mm-hmm. Is there any way to make it work out better? And that's, uh, I mean, that that's sort of fundamentally what libertarians are kind of asking here on some level. And, and it's relevant to us Christians as well in that, you know, well, okay, if we, if we think that there are things that need to be in check, well, how's it going to happen? Mm-hmm. What would we say to that, Carrie? <laughs> <laughs> well, what would we say to that? <laughs> yeah, well, when we're talking about the legitimacy of government, we have to ask what government is to begin with, right? And so as libertarians, we make this distinction between civil governance, which is a service, it's the service of administering civil justice, versus government, which is this this entity that is supposed to provide that. And if we can distinguish between those two things, then we can see much more clearly what the role and purpose of the, say, the magistrates, right? Anybody who's adjudicating these disputes, we can see more clearly what they're supposed to do. So for us as libertarians, what we're saying is whatever you call government, whether you're, you know, a a minarchist and you favor limited government or an anarchist and favor stateless civil governance, right? Whoever's providing that service of administering civil justice, we know the limitations of that. And it's those limitations that that show us where it's legitimate and where it isn't. And so we use the principles of self-ownership and non-aggression to delineate that. Self-ownership being the idea that, that we own ourselves in relation to each other, in relation to God, we're self-stewards, but God gave each one of us our stewardship over ourselves. Yep. And so, you know, we can't violate each other's self-ownership. And we know this intuitively, right? We don't have to teach an entire political philosophy in order for somebody to understand that you can't be aggressed against. You're not, you have a right not to have violence done against you, whether it's through theft or through your loss of life, or through enslavement. Yeah. So we know this intuitively. I think at at this juncture, it's important to kind of throw out there that this notion of self-ownership is really, really crucial in our conception of what rights are. Mm -hmm. Because we sometimes hear it said that, you know, Christians should be the first to be have a willingness to sort of give up their rights in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a kind of confused language at times. Yeah. I, I even heard this in a sermon recently. And I don't think that what the preacher meant was really warranted by the categories that he was setting up. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, 
we are able to, you know, give up certain kinds of rights, if you will. I have a right to my property, yes, but I am, I should be the first potentially to be willing to give certain things up for the good of someone else to, and to do that voluntarily. Mm-hmm. But what it does not mean is that we should be the first to trample on other people's rights mm-hmm. on the basis of, well, we have the knowledge and know-how and ability to use those things better than the other person. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even in the statement itself is built into it a predicated notion that those rights precede the giving them up. Right. That should not be understated. Yeah. <laughs> because because it, they had to be there in the first place for them to be given up. Mm-hmm. And that's I, I think that's somewhat apropos here because there's this kind of mistaken notion sometimes about statism that we're, we all just need to give up something in order to have the something else that whether it's the you know the peace the security or or whatever right and so the state is we are giving certain things up to the state in order to gain some sort of benefit mm-hmm. but those are actually you know mistaken notions in so many respects it is not a given that aggression needs to happen in order for greater peace to occur right that is not that is absolutely does not follow logically yeah uh, so and I hope that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and it's an excellent point because, you know, I think lots of people and Christians in particular seem to operate on the assumption that the default setting or the presumed, you know, eternal constant is the state yeah. and that our rights are subject to the state. And if the state needs to take our rights or an infringe on our rights in order to function, then we should go ahead and do that. And one of the the key libertarian figures that we have quoted in this book is Frederic Bastiat. And he talks about how government didn't precede rights. Rights preceded government. Like the whole reason why we have government is because we have rights first. And... You know, I also think that there's there's sort of this idea, you know, you, you talked about how Christians are expected to set aside our rights, like, you know, that's this superficial thing that's ultimately not needed. And so we should be willing to do that. I think we saw that a lot with the lockdowns with COVID is we should set aside our, our rights in favor of compassion. And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. But even built into that is this notion that perhaps, you know, you could say like, well, perhaps it would be a good thing to do certain things a little differently in order to show compassion. Mm-hmm. But that's not what is what they really meant. Built into it is not this idea that, well, we should, we need to do this in a voluntary manner, but that it is important that the state force it upon everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's really strange because part of my writing that I do on mere liberty that's sort of tangential to my work with with LCI is talking about abuse, various forms of mm-hmm. abuse. And so one of the parallels that I found, especially in 2020, was how abusive the state was in its response to this pandemic. And I've tried to draw that out and point that out. And there was finally even uh, some articles from I'm forgetting the name of it, A-I-E-R. 
I forget what their acronym stands yeah, for. Yeah, American Institute of Economic Research. Thank yeah. you, yes. So they've put out a few articles talking about how abusive the state is. We spent several years prior to this talking about abuse and how we weren't going to tolerate abuse anymore. And here we just spent an entire year putting up with abuse from, from the state. And I've heard pastors say that, you know, an abuse victim who is demanding an end to their abuse aren't actually asserting their rights. And I, I disagree with this vehemently, but they'll say they're not asserting their rights. They're exercising an act of love towards this person who's abusing them, who's sinning against them by pointing out their sin. And so I do think to some degree, some of those people out there who favored the lockdown on Christians and that Christians should give up their rights so that we can, you know, survive this pandemic, that that really was a setting aside of of rights in favor of quote unquote compassion or love. And I think that's a seriously distorted view because you can't even assert or or claim anything against an abuser without the right to do it in the first place. So I think that as libertarians, we draw those distinctions much more clearly. We can delineate what's loving versus what's a legal right, not just a legal right, but a God-given right. And I think that's important, especially when we're talking about what government is, what the role of government is, is for, what's the purpose of it, how far does their jurisdiction is extend? Because if we don't have those conversations, then we wind up with the situation where we're in, where whatever the government wants, they do, whether it's legitimate or not. Yes, this definitely points to one of the most crucial libertarian critiques of government that you'll, that you'll ever find with this idea of what are its limitations? Mm-hmm. Because if you do not have them, then you, you have utter tyranny. There is, if there's nothing limiting the power of what they are enabled to do, then they will do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And that concentration of power is, is, of course, exceedingly dangerous. And so the idea of limited government, even the, the, the minarchist notion that if government is to have any purpose at all, it is to only to protect individual rights and liberties, then, I mean, that's one conception of it. The other might be that, you know, from the more anarchist or anarcho-capitalist perspective, that not even a limited government is going to be able to stay that limited for long. And therefore, it needs to be even more limited than that. <laughs> Right. And so, yeah, I think that's that's really, really crucial to understand as a the overarching question of it all. What is government's purpose? What are its powers? Why should it have that power? Mm-hmm. You should make that is a question that should be asked at every step of the way for our political philosophies. Like, on what basis? Yeah. What is the logic behind the power that is being granted? Right. Well, and yeah. and if the government is legitimately allowed to step into every single aspect of our lives in the name of protecting us and our general welfare, to what extent do we say that? Because if there is no limitation, what you're saying is that they have infinite power and infinite authority, and there's Mm -hmm. only one person who has that, and that's God. It's not the state. So, you know, I think whether you take the minarchist perspective or the anarchist perspective, what we are saying is that authority itself, human authority, is necessarily limited. As soon as we make it unlimited, it not only 
becomes tyrannical, but it creates the chaos and disorder that we're trying to avoid. It also delegitimizes itself. How many people are now just ignoring orders and and their view of government is becoming eroded. Bastiat talked about that too. You know, when you're given the choice between unjust laws and morality, you're putting people in a terrible position where they have to lose respect for one or the other. And will perpetually confuse people. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, our view of the state isn't a low view of authority. It's a very high view of authority because we don't want it delegitimized in this way. We don't want the the chaos and lawlessness, but that's what we're getting when we just let the state do whatever it wants. It's fascinating to me to consider that, you know, when you have a society that is built up and is predicated on an institutionalized form of aggression, that Uh being the state, then is it any wonder that people act in chaotic ways? Right. The expectation is that aggression is the norm. Right. The expectation is not that we will act peaceably amongst each other. So is it any wonder that there is social degradation as a process? Right. That's to me, I like that's become more clear to me over, you know, looking at history over the last even just 30 years. You know, I'm, I may not be that old, but I'm at least old enough to, to see that type of, you know, decay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and perhaps that's just, you know, one becoming the wiser with age and, and being able to see the decay more clearly. But it does seem to be, you know, endemic to history that the more that people like to concentrate power amongst a central authority, that you will tend to see social degradation Mm -hmm. and that the more that you enable people to have freedom and the more that people are allowed to do as they, to do as they will and act peaceably with one another in absence of the state, that the more prosperity will result. Mm -hmm. So I think this kind of brings up an interesting, you know, kind of concluding point here, Carrie, and that's, you know, okay, we've talked about all these problems with government. We lay it all out. And, and if anybody, you know, hasn't been convinced yet that the state is, a, you know, the awfulest thing to, in, mm-hmm. the, in the history of man, then perhaps they just need to go, you know, read a little more history and, and they'll, they'll, they'll get there. But what sort of legal order do we want to see exist at all? And because one might say, well, what do, you, what do you just want? You want nothing at all? Well, and yeah, we don't want a state, but we do want, concrete rules. We do want to have means of organizing ourselves and whatnot. So what does a legal order in a libertarian world look like? Yeah, well, I think that's that's a great question. And I think you have a lot of people right now who think that we have to like start from scratch, right? That if it's if it's not what we have, if we can't work with what we have, then we have to start with from scratch. And I think the thing that libertarianism offers, number one, is a rich history of the classical liberal principles that did build America. And those are good, solid principles, but we need to reevaluate how to actually execute those principles. Those principles being, first of all, uh, individual human rights and that those are inherent in us and not gifts from from the government. They're gifts from God. But also, you know, things like the presumption of innocence, right? The right to a fair trial, the right not to incriminate yourself, those sorts of things, property rights. All of those things have a very rich history since the French Revolution. And even before that, we have, um, you know, sort of proto-libertarian philosophers out there. But, you know, libertarians 
have sort of come to this conclusion that the free market does much better than bureaucracy in providing the services that we need. And one example that I like to to use with my seminar students, my critical thinking seminar students, is the service of education. You know, we often say that civil justice is too important to leave to the market. Well, education is also very important to us. And without education, we can't innovate. We can't provide for ourselves. We can't even feed ourselves or shelter ourselves without education. So education is also very important to us. And what we find is that when the market handles education, it does a much better job. It provides a higher quality service at a lower cost. We can even get access to education access to the poor. And so there's no reason in the world why the market can't also handle dispute resolution or private law enforcement or the fire department, those sorts of things. We can actually see examples in our society as it exists today, right? We have uh, third-party dispute agencies who will handle contract disputes. We already have a lot of examples of how the market can actually provide these services better a higher quality at a lower cost and make it available to more people. And on top of it, there is that checks and balances because in the market, we have something called consumer regulation, where if the consumer is getting the short end of the stick, they have the freedom to say so. And if enough people are getting, you know, getting a bad service from a business, it's going to become known. And so if somebody's making bad law or rendering unjust judgment or is being brutal in in their private security services, that's going to become a liability. So, you know, again, there is the the disagreement between minarchists and anarchists, which I think is, you know, fair to say we can continue having that conversation. But at the very least, all of the bureaucracies that exist right now could easily be handled by the free market and taken away from, from the government. And so, you know, that's what we would like to see. We, we would like to see these more efficient ways of, of handling these things. And there's simply no reason in the world why, why the market can't handle it. Right. And it's sometimes, even if it's hard to see sometimes what it would look like to live in a world that did not have government services dominating and monopolizing mm-hmm. certain sectors of, of the economy, whether that is in you know various forms of services or in the forms of goods for that matter. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember that even if you or I may not have a perfect answer right now, it's not as though the answer isn't out there. Mm-hmm. You know, before the iPhone existed, yes, there were things that were pretty smart type phones, but Technology changes with time. It becomes more advanced and we become innovative in our means of solving certain kinds of persistent problems. And if it's just a matter of, well, I can't, if, if if what I were to say is something akin to, well, I can't see how it would work. That's not necessarily a failure of the market to be able to find someone who would innovate and provide that good or service better than the state. It's an incompleteness in my own imagination to get there. Because let's face it, in so many aspects of the, of the services and things that the government does, there are aspects of them 
that can be that we easily can see accomplished in the marketplace, mm-hmm. whether it's that fire department or it's dispute resolution, arbitration, mediation, all of this. We recognize that there are these things that are in place that can make those differences. I think that's sort of where we start. Yeah. We realize that the market is a, is a place where innovation happens in order to meet unmet needs. Mm-hmm. And if there are unmet needs in the realm of legal services, in protection, in varying types of things like this, then what we need to do is not count on aggression to fill the gap, but rather our own ingenuity. Right. Well, and I, I think it's it's really important to hit home the fact that, because I've heard the criticism, and I'm sure you have too, that oh, you guys just say the market will handle it, the market will handle it, and that's not sufficient. Well, but we're not central planners, right? We're not the ones who are trying to to do the innovation. We know that there are people out there with the knowledge and know-how that we don't have and that all they need is the freedom and space to move and, and innovate and do what they do best. And so you know, the point of libertarianism isn't to give everybody all the answers. The point is to say, we don't have all the answers, but guess what? The people who make up the market do. Yeah. And there's there's nothing but strong evidence, you know, for that throughout history. And if anything, there's ample evidence that the state cannot innovate. I don't care which side of the fence anybody lands on when it comes to this COVID vaccine, but, you know, positive or negative, the state has utterly failed to, to execute that. And, you know, everybody's complaining about it one way or the other. So the point is, is that, look, the state doesn't do it. The state doesn't do a good job at this, right? <laughs> so if we want these things that are so important to society to be taken care of, they're too important to be left to central planners because they do not have the knowledge and know-how to actually execute it. Right on. And I think that's a great kind of place to end up is that the state doesn't have the knowledge to execute much of anything well. Right. So, Carrie, again, thank you so much for joining me here. And uh, once again, we've been talking about Chapter 3 of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And you can get your own copy of it on Amazon.com or at LibertarianChristians.com. You can find us uh, online there and, of course, in various other places. We hope you'll come and engage with us. Find the book. Check it out. Let us know what you think via our contact information there and uh, let us know what you're thinking. And so, Carrie, once again, thank you for joining me. And this has been another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.